Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, momentarily thrown because I didn't get the voice that said this is going to be recording. Um, <laughs> usually that that startles me and now I'm startled because it didn't happen. Anyway, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. My guest today is Amanda Morgan. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, some of you may be familiar with Amanda from her Not Just Cute work, um, but I'm Amanda, tell folks what you want them to know about you. Yeah, so I started not just cute. The name kind of says it all. It it, um, it goes back to when I was teaching at university, doing my graduate work. I um, had a graduate teaching assistantship, and my friend and I, who um, she also had a, a teaching assistantship, we would sit in our little closet of an office and talk about these meetings that we would have with student teachers and how often the word cute came yeah. up when they would talk about what they had planned and. And just helping them understand that cute is fine. A lot of what we do does end up being cute, but cute is not a developmental objective and children deserve so much more than a cute experience in early childhood. And, and so that's a lot of where my work stems out of helping educators to understand, but also helping them to articulate to others that the work that we do is not just cute. It's really powerful and intentional. And when we see that we're able to serve children better. And when we help others to see that they're able to partner with us a lot better in building strong communities for young children to recognize that we're not just keeping them busy. We're not just entertaining them, mm -hmm. but these things that maybe look really simple and maybe look really cute are really powerful, intentional things that are really supporting strong development for young children. Yeah. Yeah. Before I had my own podcast, I was a guest on a podcast and um, just sort of organically from the conversation said, you know, we've got to get beyond, behind, beyond the cute. Mm -hmm. And, and that just sort of was like a, Oh, and then I found you <laughs> like really close. Like, like, oh, I don't, maybe I stole it from her. Maybe <laughs> I, I, I think it's a common it. thought. We, it's a yeah. common thought. <laughs> yeah. But we just, we just have to be able to, uh, I mean, yeah, the cute is fine. I'm all for a cute, funny story. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's an element too, that is sort of sort of tends towards a dehumanized view of the children Absolutely. Too, if that's what we're really focused on um so specifically uh for this episode um we're going to talk about the science of reading capital letters uh-huh the capital <laughs> letters <laughs> um it's not quite a product or a or a, or a packaged curriculum yet but it, it we have to distinguish that this we're not mm -hmm. just talking about the research that tells us about it. We're talking about mm -hmm. this program, this kind of school of thought of the science of reading. Um, and, and I mentioned before we started recording, the reason this is really interesting to me right now is because I'm in Indiana and Indiana has just passed a law and maybe other states are too, that says um, our test scores for reading are really bad. We're not happy with that. So uh, the new law is that all schools have to use science of reading research and, and tools and the framework. And so then all colleges who teach teachers mm -hmm. have to include instruction on the science of reading. So I'm trying to learn, You're right? <laughs> learn about it. Um, and uh, so just as a, uh, 
kind of an opening quote, just because that's the the thing we do on the mm-hmm. show. You've got a blog post about the science of reading reading that came out not too long ago. And the very first piece is um, you wrote, I'm passionate about intentional whole child development. And I love to nerd out. Yay, me too. <laughs> uh, tell me you have some science about how children learn and grow. And I am all in for a deep dive. So when I dove into the cap, all capitals, science of mm-hmm. reading, um, I thought there were a few things that could be clarified, especially when it comes to our youngest learners. So can you can you do like a summary of what we're talking about when we talk about the science of reading? Yeah, and I want to be clear, I'm not, you know, this big expert on science of reading, like you mentioned in the quote, I am a, kind of a generalist, I'm really mm-hmm. passionate about early childhood um, and whole child development. And so yeah. I feel like what my strength is, is um, diving in, nerding out, like you yeah. said, and like you like to do nerding out and deep diving and making connections to the whole, right. um, the larger picture of whole child development. And so yeah. when I wanted so, to make sure that we both were able, cause you wrote this too, when neither of us is opposed to it. Right. You know, and I, and I started presented. right out there. Cause I think it becomes one of those really polarizing things. And so what I say is this is a yes. And yeah. so to, to start with, just for those who are just starting with what is science of reading. So here's my understanding of it. So, um, you know, there've been a lot of different perspectives on how children learn how to read. And, um, in about 2000, there was a national reading panel where they took a lot of the science and the research and did a meta-analysis and a really rigorous look at how children learn to read. And they put together this report. Well, you fast forward to about 2018 and we have some journalists and other people who are saying, like you mentioned, reading scores are not where they should be. And they're looking at reading instruction and saying, we're missing some really important pieces And we knew about it back in 2000. And so a lot of times when they reference science of reading, they're talking about that report and the the information that came out of that that rigorous analysis of research to say good literacy development, learning how to read needs these pieces. And so that's vocabulary and phonemic awareness and phonics and fluency and comprehension. And so we see those words a lot because those were kind of the main topics there in science of reading. And so we're since 2018 becoming a little more aware of that, that, oh yeah, we were missing some of these pieces, especially things like um, the phonics and the phonemic awareness. They found there were a lot of curricula that didn't include that or emphasize it in as intentional of a way as it should have. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that's the yes part. Like, yes, we could be doing better um, and we need to, to always be looking for ways to improve our instruction. The and part for me is that I think it's gotten so much attention. That's good. It got attention and it's improving the way that we teach. But I think then when we talk about our youngest learners, we're missing some pieces where we start with a lot of things, have these assumptions that if this is good for children, it's also good for younger children. It's good for four-year-olds and three-year-olds and two-year-olds. The research that the panel used was all K-12. It was, it was was K-12. And that's a re, I feel like that is one of the key pieces that a lot of discussions are missing. The the research focused on K-12 and their findings, they mostly apply to K-12 or K-2 uh-huh. because they're, they're primary as well. But many of those same people on that panel immediately there, in fact, I think it may be in the end of the summary of the report essentially say, so now we need to go figure out what we know about preschoolers, right? <laughs> that they acknowledge their own limitation, that this is K-12 data that we're primarily using. And so some of those same panelist members were on a subsequent panel 
that looked specifically at early literacy. But today in 2023, when we talk about science of reading, almost always they're referencing that 20 or that 2000 that looked at K-12. And so that's one of the first pieces that I think is missing is that, you know, sometimes we take, I think, and I'm trying to remember who it was, I was reading an article, it's cited in some of those, um, those resources on the podcast that you mentioned. Um, But there was an academic on one of his papers and he says too often, when we do a lot of research, the headlines are the only things that make it all the mm. way that we, yeah, we sure. miss all the details, right? That the headlines are the only thing that have legs. Um, and so with science of reading, I feel like we've got a lot of legs on this awareness of building phonics and some of these other intentional aspects that we need to teach more, more directly, more intentionally. But the part that was missing was that that was intended for K through two or K through 12. Yeah. And can I, too on the many, topic oh, of yeah, headlines, yeah. can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah. The topic of the headlines being the only part of the story they hear today in the Indianapolis Star, the headline was Indiana's largest teachers colleges failing on teaching science of reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> and what, what's interesting is, is you may even be teaching some of those or very many of those. And it goes back and forth with how we start defining things. Yeah. Are you teaching? Um many, many are teaching even the components, but they aren't teaching a specific thing that they use to measure. Um, so too often what happens then is, is maybe states or other programs say science of reading is good. And so we're going to start with our three-year-olds with science of reading, but the actual science, the research that then came out of that early literacy panel is slightly different and subsequent research. There's, you know, there's been a, a, a collection of research, I think they put it out in 2021 that then looked at saying, literally said, okay, we had this early literacy panel and that was 20 years ago. So what do we know since then? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was put out just fairly recently, but doesn't get the, doesn't get the headlines, doesn't get the attention, but it tells us that just like early childhood, right? (laughs) And it, yeah. And it tells us that for our earliest learners, it's not as simple as just pushing it down. We, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we're making in many areas, not just with literacy, is that we try to give our younger learners elementary school light, yeah. right? That yeah. we just give them. If it's light. Yeah. Right. Or just <laughs> elementary school, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the places that we're missing so many golden opportunities because we think we're helping by giving them what they didn't need yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and in we're- anytime we push something down, we push something out Yeah, and we're yeah. missing what they really need. And they're not quite ready for it. You know, yeah. it's not even, yeah. What are they missing? They're just sometimes not quite ready for it. There's a foundation right. that has to be built. Yeah. And, and that's, um, you did a, you, you shared a graphic of the five pillars of the science of reading, and then you sort of developed another graphic for what you think kind of the foundational pieces or the, the, and pieces mm-hmm. that we need to think about when we're working with kids under, you know, five and younger. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a visual person. And so you see a lot of, a lot of graphics out saying, you know, the five pillars of reading, because these are the main five keys that come out of the science of reading. And those are good, but the yes. And is what are they built on? What's the foundation? We don't just extend it further down in the ground. And so we know that, that the science, the research tells us that we have broad experience with language and literacy that begins as soon as a child can hear and interact Mm -hmm. with other people, right? So we're building that foundation. And then we have this emergent literacy foundation that we're building that includes oral language and 
alphabet awareness. I mean, that's not in the five pillars, but you can't teach phonics if you don't have alphabet awareness or (laughs) concept of print is another one that's in that emergent foundational piece. Mm -hmm. And then because I believe in holistic, you know, this whole child approach, we also have to recognize that how we teach really matters. Mm -hmm. And so, um, just, I think we have to combine what we know about the science of reading with what we know about how children learn generally. Um, and, and within that whole scope of all the other things that learn that they are learning. So that as they're learning the science of reading, they're also building all these other aspects of their development. Yeah. And those are all integrated together. Right. And just as important, it, mm-hmm. they're, they're more difficult to measure sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't value it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, yeah, a lot. <laughs> Um, I think about like, so, so Indiana has, every state has their early learning standards and Indiana has theirs called the foundations, which I overall, you know, overall, I'm, I like them. I think mm-hmm. they're, they're good and they're appropriate, um, but they're, they're tailored to, to go right into um, the school standards, uh-huh. you know, the K through 12 standards. And because K through 12 standards don't really cover physical development. Right there's very limited foundations or the foundations for that are really like hygiene and one thing that says fine and gross <laughs> motor skills together. Right. And, um, and so we, we don't get as good guidance from those standards as, as we do from some of the other foundations. And, um, you know, I think that's just sort of an example of how we need to really be able to advocate for what children need in the early childhood years. Um, and if we do that, they'll be they'll be ready for the stuff that's coming along later, but we think we're going to, you talk about pushing kids down the stairs. Maybe this is a good time (laughs) for me to ask you about that metaphor that, that you included in this blog. Yeah. So one of years ago is when I wrote this um, piece called developmentally appropriate practice and why we don't push kids down the stairs. And I'm sure I linked it with the reading one um, because it's so connected. Just this idea that we know that children can't walk down the stairs in an alternating one foot on one step, the next foot on the next step until they're about three or four years old. You know, we've got toddlers that are backing down the stairs or we have the step together, step together as they cling to the side. It just takes time. It takes time for some physical maturation to happen. They need that center of gravity to shift and their legs to be longer. It takes time for some brain maturation to happen so that those hemispheres can communicate in a cohesive way. And it takes experience. They need that practice going up and down the stairs. And generally as a society, we're okay with that, that it takes a while. We don't seem to worry about getting children to go down the stairs in that alternating fashion a little bit sooner or try to get them ahead a little bit. You know, we're not selling programs or flashcards on how to get ahead on that. Yeah. Parents aren't asking each other about that. At exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we would never push them to do it before they're ready. The idea of pushing them to go down the stairs, it makes people cringe and it should, that's part of why I used that title. It makes people uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable to think about pushing kids to go down the stairs before they're ready. But there's so many other areas where we're pushing children to do things before they're ready to do it. And it's, um, and in some cases, it's also causing more damage than good, just like it would if we were to push yeah. them to go down the stairs. And um, so, yeah, recognizing that when we push them before they're developmentally ready, we're not doing them any favors. Too often, we're more interested in seeing what we want to see and maybe not even intentionally. I think sometimes even with the best of intentions, we we are setting them up to show us what we want to see more so than we're concerned with giving them what they need in that period. We kind of have this think it's too tempting to design things top down 
but development happens bottom up. And so we have to meet them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, I guess there's, there's just so much more value put on what children can do academically. Mm -hmm. Um, even, you know, even when I, you know, I mentioned parents a minute ago, I'm not criticizing parents for asking each other those questions. Right. That's what they've been programmed and taught and marketed to, Mm -hmm. to do. And they're doing that to advocate for their own child's, you know, success. But, um, uh, as professionals, we need to, we have a higher standard of understanding what exactly, um, is valuable about emerging literacy mm-hmm. in these earlier years. It's not just letters. It's not just, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, alphabet recognition and using big words or whatever. Yeah. Those, those Making all the right sounds. Part of it, yeah. yeah. But it's there's, there's so much more that mm-hmm. um, you kind of have to seek out to learn about yourself so that you can mm-hmm. do it, uh, support it with young children. Um, I was going to, I was going to, there was a reason for all that, but it's gone. <laughs> um, so I want to go, so you have the, you know, we've talked about the, the five pillars and I want to go back and read them. Um, the five pillars of, of science of reading that came from that panel, vocabulary, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, comprehension. I don't think anyone's going to stand up and say, yeah, none of those are, none of those matter. I don't want to do any right. of those things. <laughs> They're solid things. That's absolutely. So, but, but when you add in, um, you talk about the precursors mm-hmm. of those pillars, the things you just were sort of talking about, um, you find those too, so you don't have to rely on your memory. Uh, but the, the foundation uh, language and literacy, foundational language and literacy experience, as you talked about, um, alphabet knowledge, phonological awareness, concepts of print. Um, you also include writing mm-hmm. in, in what should be, you think should be considered a precursor or what you, what you consider to have been sort of left out of the science of reading conversation. Yeah. It's interesting. So if you go back to that panel in 2000, they discussed a lot of topics that they might look at and then they had to narrow it down. That's part of keeping it very rigorous and, and making it good science. But in that conversation, writing was discussed and then they took it out. So I think that's another place where I would say we have to be careful because kind of what you were saying, we value what we measure, but that doesn't mean that only the things we measure matter. Right. Right. And so they didn't include writing because they found either they didn't have enough studies to look at, to do it correctly, or for whatever reasons they had in their discussion. But if you go to some of these pieces that give us research about early literacy, writing comes up quite a bit. And I can see that, especially with emergent literacy, the way that writing works together with concepts of print, understanding how print works Mm -hmm. or with inventive spelling, that that's then connected to some concepts about, um, phonics really, and, Mm -hmm. and how these, how letters work and what sounds they make. And there are a lot of concepts put together as we give children these emergent writing experiences that are supported by the research. Yeah. Have you seen, it's been, I love invented writing. It's, but there's a new one that's been going on. <laughs> I think it's the seen certificate it. one. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. A very, very creative invention of the, the kit part. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's, they're making all the sounds. Yeah. Making all the yeah, sounds in there. Really, right. <laughs> it's really brilliant when you look at it. Um, I, you know, I think you talked a minute ago about how we need to think about the whole child too. Well, a few minutes ago. And when we're talking about writing, one of my favorite things is to to tell somebody, some unsuspecting body, um, 
that climbing up the slide is literacy. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's, you know, when we're talking about writing, it's I think it's important for that to be part of this conversation too, because otherwise, if we don't think deeply or understand the precursors, we think name writing is what's important. Uh-huh. Um, uh, or just random letters on a lot on a line on that lined paper. But if we think about the physical stuff that needs to uh-huh. be in place for a child to be successful using that tool in that coordinated mm-hmm. way, physical big body play becomes really important. Yeah. I was struck when, t- I think sometimes we make assumptions based on what we know and we forget yeah. where we need to start to help yeah. other people understand. And I was in a training, was teaching a training and I just made a comment that I thought was obvious, said something like, you know, if we have children who are struggling with writing, the best thing we can do for them is not to just put them in front of more and more pieces of paper and do more and more writing. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me that I had all these eyes looking back at me saying, well, then what else do we yeah. do? In fact, I think someone asked. And so we had conversations about all the things we need to do to, if a child is struggling with writing, it's not just about forming letters that they're mm-hmm. building fine motor skills and big body things. Like you said, the, the, that all the physical development that it takes to sit in a chair at a table and put your arm up and hold a yeah. pencil and start before you even make a mark on that page. Yeah. There are so many other experiences that that child is relying on to have those and physical abilities. Their shoulders have to be mm-hmm. strong. They're, they're, it's not just fingers even. It's and so I, many. I used to stand in front of groups and say, you know, gross motor is the whole body. And then fine motor is like this, in the fingers. And I uh-huh. you know, wrong at that. Now I know better, you know, we children develop from the outside or from the inside mm-hmm. out, right. That'll be more meaningful in the video version of this, but, um, <laughs> so they've got to have a good, strong, healthy core, you know, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to say healthy, but, um, you know, a good, a good experience with their core body strength and muscles. And then it extends out shoulders, elbows, wrists. Um, and, and that's all pre-literacy. Yeah. That those things, like you said, climbing up the stairs or, yeah. or I mean, climbing sorry, up climbing slide. up the slide or yeah. going across the monkey bars, digging in the sandbox, all of those yeah. things are helping to prepare yeah. them, give them the Play-Doh. skills and the strength. Oh, yeah. Play-Doh for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so when we start seeing all of those things as writing, it shifts the way we look at that. That we're, yeah. we're doing that preparation work. Yeah. And makes it a little easier to advocate for play. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm just looking through the things I circled and underlined here. Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure if this will work in an audio format, but you talk about, and I, I had never heard of this before, Hollis Scarborough's reading rope. Uh-huh. Feel like you can talk that through without peeing. I think so. Reading. And there's some links in that blog post. I yeah. love, I love listening to her explain it, uh-huh. but I think one of the general takeaways is understanding that, that building literacy has this, has many, many different skills. And she talks about them being woven together like a rope. And that, that you have all these strands that are weaving together because you need them all. They work together, but you're also increasing, um, in that strength, they rely on each other. They strengthen each other. And, um, but there are kind of these two aspects of the, you know, there's the sounds, the, the phonics aspects, knowing, recognizing letters and making the sounds and, and decoding those aspects, but that's not enough. And sometimes I see programs that are geared, especially towards really young children where they're just training them to make sounds. And that's like taking just a few strands out of this rope and (laughs) hoping that's going to be strong enough. enough, Yeah. Yeah. But there's this other part that is all of the meaning. So that's all the, the oral language and vocabulary and these conversations and songs and stories and, and the read alouds where you're having conversations back and forth. That's a critical part as well. That's woven in here. And 
um, that when you, when you take all of these skills together and weave them together, those are our strong readers, but you can't just pull one skill out of isolation and pretend that that is itself reading, just making the sounds on the page that is not reading. Yeah. And you say making meaning is the ultimate goal of reading ultimately. And yeah. Yeah. And writing, I would include in there. It reminded me of, this is going back to writing again, but I think it's still relevant, um, of, uh, a boy I had in one of my classes who was four and mom called me and was really worried. Well, first she took him out of my program because she didn't like something. Um, but then she called me like six months later because um, he wouldn't, he wouldn't sit and do name writing practice. And she was really distressed, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, really just feeling like he's going to be so behind. Um, you know, and I said, well, the biggest thing you can do is make him want, you know, provide experience that make him want to write or see the value of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, of course, build up that, that strength, if that's what you see is missing, but also if he just sees it as a chore that he's not good at, <laughs> that you're really that means nothing, about, that means nothing to him. Um, then, then of course he's not going to want to sit and do like drills essentially. Mm-hmm. But if, if writing becomes a, something he sees as a useful tool to convey meaning or to, you know, read and, mm-hmm. and, and receive meaning, um, and it's something that's relevant to him, then he's going to be a whole lot mo- more motivated, um, to, to want to write, you know, mm-hmm. but then, you know, then is he ready to write the physical right. this comes into the conversation. But, um, I think that all sort of fits into this idea of there being a rope with many strands. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting in the context, you know, when I start nerding out and I dig around and where are the footnotes and what is, yeah. what else does it go to? What's the context? And so yeah. when this, when this national reading panel was convened and they released their results in 2000, there was actually another panel that, that got together. I should find what the actual name is. They were doing a similar, similar piece of work, but theirs was more like a synthesis of, um, so it was the preventing reading difficulties in young children. So that one was published in 1998 and where the national reading panel report was more of a meta-analysis. It was really rigorous science. Mm -hmm. The, the other panel was doing more of a synthesis, they brought together, you know, from all their different disciplines, what they knew about what needed to be done to prevent reading difficulties. So they came out with some, some answers that were very similar, some that were different. Um, But those are some of the things that I feel like got left out, just what you're describing. They Mm -hmm. talk some about motivation and environment and, and some of those other aspects. So it goes back again, like we were saying with you know, if we only count what we measured or can easily measure, mm-hmm. we may leave out some other things that do matter that right. are harder to measure. And that motivation piece is part of that. Making it meaningful can be mm-hmm. part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Or waiting until it's meaningful. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not make, you know, it's not necessarily us right. putting a lot of effort into making it. Sometimes it is, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's just sort of that maturation Both sides of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which um, brings me to uh, the book that you made me order. <laughs> <laughs> Boo-hoo, I had to buy another right? book. Um, Proust and the Squid, oh. Science of the Reading Brain by cognitive neuroscientist Marianne Wolf. I'm really excited for it to get to my house. Uh-huh. Um, but she, she, you shared that she wrote, the association between hearing written language and feeling loved, I'm going to choke up a little, provides the best foundation for this long process of emergent literacy. And no cognitive scientist or educational researcher could have designed a better one. Um, just that I that idea that um, connecting the hearing that language and feeling loved. You know, we mm-hmm. we talk about you know we want it to be an enjoyable experience. Mm-hmm. We want children to have positive experiences with books, and your lap is the best place. All those things, but but that 
I don't know that there's something about using sticking the word love in there. Right. And I think sometimes we're hesitant to use that from a science, you know, love isn't science, love isn't nerdy, but there's actually a lot of really fascinating science about what emotion does to the brain Mm -hmm. and how it changes the way that the brain is, is open to learning and prepared Mm -hmm. for learning. And especially when we're talking about human development, there are so many research-based uh, pieces of information that we know that relationships matter. I, I say all the time that all of human development happens in the context of human relationships, yeah. because we see it over and over in the research that relationships, it's this thread that runs through human development and it connects with, especially with early learning that, that we can't, again, maybe put this, it's harder to measure, but we have some neuroscientists who have done it and they've yeah. shown us that, that relationships and emotion, it actually absolutely plays into how our little ones learn. Yeah. It's so hard to, I think, I think there's resistance to it, to talking Mm -hmm. about love and using that, that kind of blatant language about relationships, Mm -hmm. even though we'll talk all day about how relationships matter and are important. Part of it, I think is because, you know, we're always, we're just so used to fighting for respect as, Mm -hmm. as experts and professionals. And if we throw love and emotion into it, we're going to take three steps backwards. (laughs) Right. Um, so that's one of the reasons I love that all this good nerdy neuroscience yeah. stuff. Is I love out. I love to use quotes that use words like love and joy when I'm quoting neuroscientists. That's yeah. my favorite time to use those words because then it's not me saying it, even though I want to say it as well. But when, exactly. I feel like when I have a neuroscientist saying it or a cognitive scientist saying it, yeah. then we know that this word love is backed by a bunch of footnotes with research, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I love it. Um uh because it'll, that'll hit for somebody. Somebody Mm -hmm. needs that connection for it to really stick. Um, just please hold my (laughs) underlinings. Um, yeah, I think we've hit everything that I wanted to, to specifically ask what, what would you add? What have we not what did you want to say before? You know, the the only thing that. that I've thought of is when I've talked with other teachers who are in similar positions where they're saying, you know, I teach pre-K or I teach three preschooler, three, three-year-old preschoolers. <laughs> um, but my school district or my state is saying it's all science of reading, science of reading, and they just want to take it and push it down and water it down. Um, what I've told them, I think some of the best things to bring to those conversations, if you're headed to meetings or trainings and conversations, um, is to bring research, right? If we're talking about the science of reading, then bring the science. And so there are other, um, other pieces of research in addition to that national reading panel. So one I would bring is the report of the national early literacy panel that was in 2008 that followed that, I mean, that these, that some of these same researchers said, now we need to look at the younger learners. And that's the report they released in 2008. And then I would bring effectiveness of early literacy instruction, 20 years of research. That one was published in 2021. um, That again, is going to take more science that is focusing more so on our youngest learners. And so just making sure that I think if you show up to a meeting and say, I don't like science of reading, that's not going to help anybody. But if you show up and say, I am so excited about all these new things that we're learning and better articulating, I want to make sure that we're, we're actually also including the research focused on three-year-olds, four-year-olds, um, and be, be prepared with some of that research to, to bring in, because it is very similar, Mm -hmm. but, but we owe it to our youngest learners to look at the research that was focused on them to make sure that we're getting it right. And that we're not just trying to resize something for them. Yeah. And for our professional respect, right. If we Mm -hmm. are concerned about being, being considered professionals with valuable expertise, let's learn that 
the right stuff, you know, let's learn the stuff that's relevant to the age that we're working with and, and be able to be part of those conversations Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, because yeah, I'll tell you what, when the first conversations we were having about this in Indiana that I was part of, my, I was feeling sick to my stomach. Like I was so (laughs) nervous. Um, and then I was like, oh wait, this is just the 2000 reading panel. All right. Right. And it's really, so much of it is how it gets interpreted, right? With anything in education, we have some really great ideas that get interpreted really poorly. And so I think that's our job as professionals to make sure that it's being interpreted correctly for our youngest learners and, and to come with, I say over and over, people don't value what they don't understand. And so if you feel like you're not being valued at the table or your, your preschoolers aren't being valued, then it's my job to figure out what do people not understand? about my work or about my children. And so in this conversation, I think one of those big pieces is what do they not understand about how our three and four-year-olds are different than our K through two-year-olds and how can I add that so that they will value that difference? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) Sorry. I'm hot flashing while we're recording. (laughs) Looking at how close I am on the camera. Um, It's that time for Heather. Um, (laughs) So Amanda, this has been really, really great. I've really enjoyed it. How how can people find you and what is out there for them to find? Like what so you can, of- you can find me at notjustcute.com, And then I have a podcast called not just cute, the podcast. Um, I do have Instagram. I don't post as often as some yeah. may say that I should, but that's yeah. Amanda underscore, not just cute. Uh-huh. Um, you can find me there as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm on Instagram too. And I, I mean, personally, I use it a lot, but for my nerd stuff, right. It, it doesn't really fit the kinds of things. Yeah. I there's a, and there's only so much one person can do, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It, That's right. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks very much. I'm going to try and remember to, um, to include links to those two important uh, resources that you shared when, when this goes out. Um, and I'm sure um, uh, folks, a lot of them already know you, I'm sure, who are listening to this, <laughs> but um, if, if it's their first time, I know they're going to have a lot of fun over there looking at all your... That'd all be your awesome. Stuff. Yeah, thanks again. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.